This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to the Clinician to Clinician podcast. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Joining me for this podcast is Dr. Barbara Jones, who's an assistant professor in the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Division at the University of Utah and also at the Salt Lake City VA Healthcare System. Dr. Jones co-authored a summary of a recently published clinical practice guideline for the diagnosis and treatment of community-acquired pneumonia, and this was a follow-up to the larger iteration of the uh, uh, community-acquired pneumonia pathway. So I'm really, uh, really happy to have Dr. Jones here to talk about a very important and very common clinical topic. So Dr. Jones, welcome and thank you for joining the podcast, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks so much, Dr. Tino, and happy pneumonia season to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So um, I'm going to ask you a question that seems obvious, but um, there are obviously very important implication to guidelines, to these kind of clinical guidelines, to help physicians and other providers make, as best they can, evidence-based decisions about treating the entity that they are. But are there other benefits? Why are, why are clinical guidelines otherwise important? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I kind of feel like there's two big reasons that the guidelines are really important. The first is for practicing clinicians, uh, they give you a really good synthesis of the evidence that's behind pneumonia care that's really thoroughly examined by very engaged and experienced experts in the field. I have seen these people come together in conferences, and they really have the clinician in mind, which is fantastic. Um, the amount of research that's being produced these days is just impossible for clinicians to digest and really difficult to apply at the bedside. So a practice guide that's created using a standard process with clinicians in mind by people who are committed to really critically evaluating the evidence is something that clinicians can trust. Um, the second thing I think is important from a research perspective is that it ref gives us a really nice uh, state of knowledge about our disease and how best to diagnose and manage it. Um, the evidence base is uh, probably at best for pneumonia pretty shaky and dynamic, you know, so it will continue to change throughout mm -hmm. a clinician and researcher's lifetime, probably our lifetime. I'm hoping it's going to change a lot. So producing practice guidelines that help us critically evaluate kind of what our in evidence informs and then where we might have the gaps, it really helps outline for both the clinician and the researcher, the areas kind of, of uncertainty that should be prioritized. So, Thank you for that. And so we're going to get into obviously a lot of the details about, about uh, the guidelines, but I think it's important maybe we would start off with the question of what are the key changes in this latest iteration? The guidelines have been around for a number of years. So what are the key things that are different about this one as opposed to the most, the most recent version? Uh, so there's a lot that has changed and actually a lot that hasn't. So probably the most important change is abandoning the criteria for healthcare associated pneumonia. So HCAP, when you're thinking about risk for resistant organisms. Other big changes included more consistently aggressive diagnostic uh, testing for patients with severe pneumonia or uh, who is getting broad spectrum antibiotics. So respiratory cultures in addition to blood cultures and urinary antigens for those patients. Um, and then less aggressive testing for those with moderate or non-severe CAP. Um, recommendations also around macrolides have changed a bit. 
relating to the increased prevalence of macrolide resistance, especially in strep pneumo. Um, and then using the PSI for hospitalization decisions, uh, kind of when it's feasible over the CURB-65. Oh, and the other one, no more follow-up chest x-rays for routine cases. But much, uh, much about it remains the same. So timely side-of-care antibiotic uh, decision-making uh, treatment uh, with the same first-line antibiotics as before directed against the same pathogens that we've kind of been using for decades. So the authors took a hard look at all the evidence for biomarkers, new diagnostic tests, uh, but the consensus was that there just wasn't sufficient evidence to recommend those for standard practice in pneumonia. So a lot about pneumonia diagnosis and treatment is, uh, is quite a bit the same. Great. Well, we're going to come back to some of these things um, to elaborate on them, and, and uh, I may disagree with one or two of them, but we'll see. <laughs> so, so with that as a springboard, so let's talk about diagnostic testing first. So there are several uh, diagnostic um, modalities that were addressed. So let's start with, with sputum grand stain and sputum cultures. Yeah, so the current recommendation, um, one thing I, I feel is it's actually simpler in that the indications for both blood culture and recommend, uh, recommended indications for respiratory cultures are the same. Patients with severe pneumonia and those receiving broad-spectrum antibiotics so previously, re respiratory cultures weren't necessarily recommended for um, patients receiving broad-spectrum antibiotics, but the guideline authors are really trying to encourage that those patients get tested. For blood cultures, um, that's kind of an interesting space. So honestly, there's pretty low-quality evidence for uh, the recommendations for or against blood cultures, which the authors acknowledge. But one of the things that the authors noticed was that the vast majority of blood cultures for pneumonia are negative. And the yield is really low in patients without severe CAPS. Um, and the positive uh, cultures were almost always strep pneumo, which is empirically treated with our first-line agents anyway. So false positives were associated with a longer length of hospital stay as well. So while we're always wondering what the microbial uh, you know, etiology is for a patient, if they're not severely ill or septic, the chances that the blood cultures are going to help target therapy is quite low. So the change was actually made in the previous guideline from 2007, and that guideline actually uh, back then recommended blood cultures only for severe disease as well. Um, but prior to that, blood cultures on admission was used as a performance measure by CMS. So when performance measures are involved, old habits die pretty hard. Um, so we, in the population that I study, we're still, uh, you know, getting blood cultures for around 80% of our patients. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the rationale behind that one. All right. So, so the guidelines recommend against getting routine sputum gram stains and cultures in patients with, uh, who are being managed as outpatient, um, but they do recommend right. pre-treatment gram stain and culture for those who have severe cap. Um, that's and right. If they're being empirically treated for certain bugs, right, including MRSA. That's right. Um, and Pseudomonas. Um, and yep. again, we, we can, uh, our, our colleagues can look at the, at the uh, guidelines specifically and the tables on the guidelines, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a good uh, first step in identifying the role for gram stain and for cultures, uh, blood cultures. How about for, um, for strep and Legionella urinary antigen? When, sh when should we be getting those studies? Yeah, this is really, I would say, the more striking change. Um, no more routine urinary antigens for patients uh, unless they have severe CAP or specific risk factors like travel for Legionella. There just wasn't sufficient evidence to the author's uh, view that it improved outcomes um, in anyone but the severely ill. Okay. Influenza testing. Speaking of 
pneumonia season and influenza season. So seeing a lot of patients with, with viral respiratory illnesses. So tell us about the role of influenza testing in people that are diagnosed with CAP. Yep, when influenza is circulating in the community, uh, testing is recommended for everyone with CAP. And so they would try to really be consistent with the influenza guidelines on this one. Okay. And then finally, procalcitonin. And I'm an old guy, and, and we didn't have procalcitonin when I was <laughs> in my training and early in my career. Uh, so I actually struggle with the procalcitonin story. So, so where are we with that in CAP? Yeah, so the guideline authors uh, really took a hard look at this one, and it is not recommended for routine use to support the antibiotic decision in uh, pneumonia. So there's been a lot of really exciting research focused on examining the utility of procalcitonin for respiratory infections and lots of different syndromes. It does seem to tell us uh, about a pattern of host response that's pretty strongly correlated with bacteria. But unfortunately, it just hasn't proven to have sufficient accuracy to safely rule out bacterial pneumonia. Um, so for bacterial pneumonia, uh, for CAP, it's not recommended to uh, be used routinely. And again, the rationale for that is that there wasn't a specific threshold for calcitonin levels that can safely be used to make a decision not to do antibacterial therapy, correct? Exactly, yeah. And just uh, too many false, both false negatives and false positives actually. Okay, great. So. Sputum gram stains, blood cultures in, in, in the circumstances we talked about, influenza testing everybody, procalcitonin not necessary on a routine basis, uh, and again, strep and legionella urine antigen testing specifically for specific populations. Yep, that's right. All right. So one of the, one of the questions that comes up from our ED colleagues, and even when I see patients in, in the office, so in terms of whether they should be treated as an outpatient or as an inpatient. So what are the recommendations about, about treatment location and what are the, some, of the, some of the data that the guidelines recommend that we use? Oh yeah, this is such an interesting one. So both of the CURB-65 and the PSI or PORT scores are 30-day mortality prediction scores that are intended to be hand calculated at the bedside by doctors to identify patients with low risk of death who might not need to be hospitalized. So the CURB-65 was developed in the UK. It has five factors. The PSI developed in the United States has over 20, and it also includes lots of comorbidities with that. So you get more of kind of a patient context. The PSI is more accurate, but CURB-65 has also been validated and found to be pretty accurate and almost as good as the PSI for predicting mortality. And much more simple, right? So five features. Right. So why wouldn't you use the CURB-65? Um, one problem is that one thing, uh, you know, it's one thing to demonstrate accuracy, but it's another thing to demonstrate that, that it has an impact on outcomes. So after developing the PSI, um, the uh, developers decided, decided to test it in real practice as part of a decision support tool that was implemented in a very well conducted, conducted prospective cluster randomized control trial, and they found it reduced low-risk hospitalization and it didn't increase death or secondary hospitalizations. So it's not only more accurate, but it also has demonstrated effectiveness in a clinical trial with you know, multiple sites. Mm -hmm. This is important because if we're seeing you know, a lot of the newer, more accurate prediction models coming around the corner, and when we evaluate them, it's you know, important to make sure that they are accurate, but it's also kind of uh, important to ultimately test them in practice. You know, 
it's got these kind of tools have to map sufficiently to our decision making in order to be trusted and useful. And it's really kind of unclear how some of them are going to play out, you know, to mm -hmm. be helpful. Um, so that said, the PSI has 23 variables. So it's a pretty hard line to tow, especially for emergency department physicians who are increasingly burdened with a lot of patients. So I talk with a lot of ER docs, and many of them tell me that manually imputing 23 variables into a score on a busy shift or with sick patients is just not going to happen, you know? Um, so that might be an important role, you know, for a systems approach or, you know, kind of having embedding it into the workflow, maybe with computers. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, the CURB-65 is much more usable. So a lot of ER physicians have that one memorized. Uh, so, you know, the way the authors, uh, you know, framed this was they strongly recommend some kind of objective severity assessment. They understand that the PSI is a little bit less feasible than the CURB-65. Both of them are okay. If possible and in the right setting, the PSI is more strongly, you know, has more evidence behind it. Um, but if you don't have that, the CURB-65 is still kind of a conditionally recommended score. Okay. Um, how about who should be admitted to the ICU? That's a question also that, that ER docs face on a regular basis. Yeah, so this is a hard question because that's a pretty complex decision, right? So the only strong recommendation here is, of course, uh, the decisions that aren't as difficult. Uh, the major criteria for um, admitting somebody to the ICU is shock on pressures and respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation. So that's a pretty easy bar. Um, but short of these criteria, of course, we have a lot of patients in the gray zone. Um, there is the minor severe CAP criteria that are recommended for, you know, applying in the, this group. So uh, if your patient has uh, abnormal platelets, PETA-F ratio, confusion, uremia, leukopenia, hypothermia, hypotension, or multilobar infiltrates, they may have, you know, those are uh, the minor criteria. And so they highly recommend that uh, people use that uh, severe CAP criteria to guide the decision uh, for um, ICU admission. Okay. So let's switch gears now. We've talked about some of the diagnostic testing, and let's start talking about therapy. So, um, and specifically empiric antibiotic um, regimens. And the guidelines, again, split uh, into four different categories, and we'll start with the first one. So the outpatient without significant comorbidities, what antibiotics should we be using? So it's no longer recommended to use azithromycin as outpatient monotherapy for areas that have a prevalence of, um, you know, re high resistance of strep pneumo uh, to macrolides. But amoxicillin and doxycycline are still first line. How about patients who are treated as outpatient but who have significant cardiac pulmonary and other comorbidities? Yeah, so, so for patients with chronic heart, lung, liver, or renal disease, or diabetes and alcoholism, cancer, or asplenia, uh, so those are the comorbidities that we think about, um, might put you at risk for not doing well with the, the single agents. Um, they recommend now using a moxclav or cefuroxime, so a pretty solid beta-lactam, plus either macrolide or doxycycline. Or, you know, especially if your patient has allergies, um, a respiratory fluoroquinolone uh, should be adequate. Where does, where does uh, the respiratory fluoroquinolone, uh, what role does it play in patients, uh, the outpatients who don't have comorbidities? Is there ever a reason why we would use 
a quinolone other than allergic uh, allergies to other antibiotics where we would use levofloxacin, for example, as first-line therapy? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I always think about the respiratory fluoroquinolones in my patients that have, you know, COPD, and I'm kind of wondering about pseudomonas colonization. They're not, you know, sick enough to be in the hospital, but you kind of think about that one. Um, allergies, of course, but honestly, fluoroquinolones since the last guidelines have really received a lot of uh, evidence, you know, suggesting that there might be some harm with fluoroquinolones. So the guideline authors did not unrecommend respiratory fluoroquinolones, but they were a little bit, you know, they reviewed all of that harm data and they still feel that it's a solid option as a second line, but it really isn't recommended for first line anymore. Perfect. Thank you for that clarification. I think that becomes very relevant for a lot of our clinicians. All right. So the patient's now yeah. in the hospital and yes. they have non-severe cap. What do okay. we do now? Um, so this is where you still have some choices. Um, the, you know, kind of first line, but they, they sort of said both of these were adequate. So beta-lactam endomacrolide or a respiratory fluoroquinolone. And both of those are okay for hospitalized ward patients. Okay. Now, Patients in the hospital, but they've got severe cap. Beta-lactam and a macrolide, or a beta-lactam and a fluoroquinolone. So, so pretty simple choices. Yeah, yeah, and All not right. too big of a change. <laughs> All right. So now I see in my practice a lot of patients with, with bronchiectasis, and so MRSA and pseudomonas coverage always becomes important. Not so much, obviously, for other kinds of patients, but, but when should we start to consider outside of patients with bronchiectasis, empiric MRSA or pseudomonas coverage? Yeah, that's a great question. So this is probably the biggest change in the guideline. Um, you know, previously uh, they were starting to notice some patients with risk factors that seem to raise the risk for resident organisms. So they introduced this concept of healthcare associated pneumonia um, into actually initially the HAP guidelines, so the Hospital Acquired Pneumonia Guidelines in 2005, and then they reemphasized them in the update for CAP in 2007. You know, that was based on some observational studies that showed that patients with those risk factors, so nursing home residents, previous hospitalizations, um, IV therapy, hemodialysis, wound care, so basically healthcare exposures, or even family members with resistant organisms they seem to have an increased risk for resistant organisms. That was sufficient to warrant therapy, you know, with broad-spectrum antibiotics. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the other studies that tried to validate this criteria to, as a, you know, sufficient predictor of uh, resistant organisms would just woefully found that it's just like terrible prediction. Mm -hmm. And we noticed that there was a, since the 2007, there's been a huge increase in the use of broad spectrum antibiotics for hospitalized pneumonia patients. And there really hasn't seemed to be much of a benefit to patients. So no other prediction scores at this point has demonstrated any, you know, sufficient accuracy to replace that HCAP. But there has been some really great research in this area directed at this question. Um, so you might have a better sense of the relationship between patient contacts and risk factors with resistant organisms. Um, although there's been a lot of variation in kind of the results of the studies, so it's a little hard to tease out. But at this point, the strongest predictor of identifying a resistant organism in a patient with pneumonia is a previous detection of that organism on a culture. 
in the past. So they uh, had this recommendation now that's in the past year, look back at your patient's microbiology history and look to see if they have those resistant organisms uh, identified on culture in the past. Those are patients who might still warrant therapy. Um, and then there's a couple weaker predictors. Previous hospitalizations do seem to be associated with resistant organisms, and so do IV antibiotics. Um, those are a bit weaker predictors than the uh, history of infection, but we you know, have been attempting to validate these. It's really important to keep validating these in diverse settings. Uh, so the authors are hoping that you know, uh, lots of different facilities you know, try to really test whether or not these um, risk factors are panning out in their communities too. Okay. And just to clarify, when you're considering hospitalizations and exposure to IV antibiotics, it's in the preceding 90 days, correct? So, yeah, in 90 days of uh, exposure with the hospital and antibiotics, um, but looking back a whole year for culture data. Great. Um, so one of the things that's happened, especially in, in the ICU, is the, is the use of rapid MRSA nasal testing. Um, so, Ooh, yeah. So, so what do you think about, what does the panel think about um, now that the turnaround time is, is, is guiding increasingly quick. So, um, tell me about the positive predictor value, um, or the negative, negative predictive value of, a, of, of MRSA testing. That is a great question. So this really has, uh, become an, another, you know, new change to the guidelines. Um, so MRSA has dem or sorry, MRSA PCRs have demonstrated, a actually very high negative predictive value for identifying MRSA on culture in patients with pneumonia. Um, it doesn't, however, have a high positive predictive value. So what that means is a negative MRSA test very strongly suggests that the patient is very unlikely to have a MRSA um, identified on blood culture or sputum culture um, two days later. Um, but the value of a more rapid test is it's high negative predictive value. It's got a very low positive predictive value. Okay. So you really shouldn't be using this. A positive MRSA test probably just means that that patient has maybe some colonization, but it's still not a good predictor of uh, actually having a positive culture. Does okay. that all make sense? That makes sense. And that's the way yeah. that we've been using it at our institution. And I'm glad that uh, the guidelines have come out in, in favor of that practice. All right. Now, yeah, yeah. It seems like it's actually a really great way. They're, they're really rapid and they're going to be increasingly rapid over, you know, the next few years. Uh, so it might be a good way to safely withhold antibiotics um, and, you know, before you get that, that test back. So let me ask your opinion about something then. So let's say, as I've seen this before, that a patient in the last year has had a positive sputum culture for staph, either MSSA or, or MRSA. And now they come in with pneumonia and their, and their nasal swab for MRSA is negative. What do you do then? Do you, do you cover um, for, for staff in that, in that um, circumstance or do you, do you go with, again, the high negative predictive value of the, of the nasal testing? Yeah, that's a great question. And what I would do is I probably, you know, honestly, that person's probably been given empiric therapy already by the time you see them and you see their swab. If that's the case, then I would probably stop those antibiotics. Um, you know, the interesting thing is that um, it hasn't ever actually been proven in a randomized controlled trial uh, that empiric therapy, uh, you know, with broad spectrum and, and broad spectrum antibiotics uh, improves care, even for patients who have positive cultures. Now, we'd expect it to, 
Um, but, you know, the harm that we put our patients at, you know, when we give broad spectrum antibiotics has to be balanced with, you know, the potential harm for missing a day. Yep. Um, so, you know, if you've got a patient who has a negative um, MRSA swab, um, but a history of MRSA culture, um, it's probably still pretty safe to wait until those cultures come back. Now, let me say one more thing about that, though. There is a population of patients that don't seem to really follow these rules. <laughs> and I would say that those patients that might actually have a pretty high community-acquired MRSA risk, patients with a history of IV drug use, patients with cavitary lesions that you're kind of worried about um, MRSA, patients who are in, you know, sepsis, septic shock, and if they have any evidence of necrotizing pneumonia, and you're worried about MRSA or as, you know, a co-infection for influenza, now those patients um, might actually not have a positive um, MRSA PCR, but they might actually still have a culture positive for MRSA down the road. Yeah. And those patients, it's, it's a little bit harder, uh, not as good evidence that that MRSA PCR has such a negative critical value for those patients. Perfect. Thank you. So before yeah. we leave antibiotics, let's talk about one more clinical circumstance, and that's aspiration pneumonia or suspected aspiration pneumonia. So, you know, I remember in my training, we talked about the importance of anaerobic bacteria, which are hard to culture, but, but they were thought to be important in the pathogenesis of an aspiration pneumonia. And it turns out that may not really be the case. So what, what does the panel recommend in terms of covering anaerobic bacteria uh, in cases of suspected aspiration? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up too. So uh, here's the recommendation. Only if we're suspicious of a necrotizing process, so abscess, cavitary infiltrates, or empyema, that's when we really should be considering anaerobes and covering for them. Um, the fun backstory about the you know, aspiration pneumonia recommendation is that it really seems like our concept of aspiration has changed over time. So the studies, you know, from the 1970s on aspiration pneumonia that showed all these anaerobes, those were performed in a lot of patients who were like bound down with alcoholism, cavitary lesions. The concept of aspiration since then has changed into, now we know, of course, everybody micro aspirates, right? Uh, so the concept of aspiration now, our picture is now kind of more of the little old lady in the nursing home who had an aspiration event, it's not quite the same as what they were talking about in 1970. <laughs> Correct. Great. So, so no need to add anaerobic bacteria unless you're suspicious that somebody has an obvious lung abscess or empyema or a cavitary process. Perfect. That's right. right. Yep. All right. So now let's move on to other supportive care other than antibiotics. So obviously over the last several years, lots of data about the use of corticosteroids in CAP. So again, what does the panel recommend based on the data that's out there? Very important yeah. think, practical question for our colleagues. Really, really important. And this is actually one of the few areas of the guidelines that's been really well studied since the last guideline update uh, with prospective trials. They have not been able to generate the evidence to support routine use for pneumonia. However, in patients with refractory septic shock, uh, the community does agree with the recommendations from the mm -hmm. surviving sepsis campaign, you know, right. on that. So, so um, limited scope of the use of corticosteroids in, in other areas like refractory shock, uh, septic shock, where, again, there's lots of data to support that. But so the routine use of, 
of systemic corticosteroids as an as a supportive or adjunct therapy is not supported not recommended by by the panel correct that's right and yeah and you know there's a whole lot of new information about the host response coming out i think we're going to learn a lot in the next couple of decades um, there may be a, a subset of patients who might benefit, you know, because we want to be able to tackle the immune response in some way, but it is just, we just don't know who to stratify. And so at this point, we don't have good evidence that steroids help, you know, the large number of patients with pneumonia. So um, the, the guidelines also tackle the idea of the treatment of influenza positive cap. And, and the role of antiviral therapy. So with regard to that specific circumstance, I was really struck that an important recommendation is that antiviral therapy be prescribed in both hospitalized patients as well as outpatients, even if they're past the typical or usual 48-hour window that we've talked about. So to continue it or, or start it, even if they're 72 hours out or beyond. Can you elaborate uh, why that's yeah. the recommendation? Yeah, and uh, this is another, you know, they really tried to complement the influenza practice guidelines. Um, and reviewing the more recent evidence with Tamiflu or Oseltamivir uh, for um, influenza, the treatment within 48 hours is great. It results in the best outcomes. But prospective studies, you know, since the last guideline have demonstrated that there's clinical benefit even outside this window. Um, it's stronger for inpatients. But even for outpatients, there have been a few studies that suggested that they had faster symptom resolution and actually, importantly, fewer, you know, needs for hospitalization uh, kind of down the road. So uh, at this point, you know, we try, we want to treat more patients than we kind of did before. This wasn't um, addressed in the guideline, but I, I'm just, uh, I wanted your opinion about this if you can. So how about in those patients where uh, you suspect a prodrome, um, but either nasal testing isn't available or uh, for some reason you don't have that at your disposal. Should we, should we be using uh, antiviral therapy uh, in patients where there's a clinical suspicion, they have CAP? Um, should we be using that uh, antiviral therapy in that circumstance, or is it really just and nasal you, swab yeah. um, driven? And, and you don't have access to testing, yeah. For whatever reason. Um, you know, it, it probably depends on the community and the season. But, you know, as my putting my clinician hat on, I probably would. Um, and, you know, just because there really, you know, is a lot of uncertainty about uh, when, you know, patients are going to have epidemics with influenza. There's so much that, you know, we don't know about the externalities once someone mm -hmm. is infective and, you know, trying to reduce the population burden of the virus. So I probably would have a pretty low threshold for influenza treatment. Um, it's nice to test. The tests are continuously being more rapid. It is recommended to not use the antigen test anymore and to, you know, really the PCR or nucleic assay tests are, are much more accurate. Uh, and those are increasingly rapid, you know, within a, a, an emergency department visit. So. I really appreciate your answering that. I mean, that's, that's my approach too, but I just want to make it clear yeah. to our colleagues and our listeners that that specific clinical circumstance was not addressed uh, in the guideline that anti-influenza treatment true. really is, is for people who test positive for influenza. Uh, so I just, wanted to make right. that, I just wanted to make that, uh, that, that disclaimer. Yeah. So, and often, you know, in the past CDC has uh, had updates, you know, if there is a pandemic, you know, then they, they might change the recommendation. So that test versus treat threshold 
uh, sometimes, you know, passes the threshold where, you know, you'd stop testing at all, even if you have uh, ability to. So another important question, and this is the one that I got to tell you, even though the data is out there and I should know better, this is the one that I've, it's taken me a long time to, to really come to grips with is, and that is the, the duration of antibiotics. So what does the panel Oh, yes. <laughs> well, as long as it's uh, not a football score, then we're going to be happy. <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there are some, actually some pretty good evidence uh, behind this one. The patient um, needs to reach clinical stability, meaning resolution of temperature, blood pressure, respiratory rate, oxygen needs. Um, and then beyond that, five days for standard bugs appears to be adequate. Um, and seven days for resistant organisms. So you remember the um, 14 days for Pseudomonas infection? No longer, seven days appears to be adequate for both MRSA and Pseudomonas. So, uh, and again, it sounds like, again, there is a little wiggle room here because the clinic, and I like, and I like that there are clinical parameters here, like, like you said, the, the, the defervescence, you know, the ability to, to eat, not normal metal status, et cetera. Um, um, but the, but it's clear that the data supports that sometimes shorter is better or just as good without exposing people That's to right. the hazards of long-term antibiotics. The one thing that, yeah. that I would, that I would just add to what you said, again, this is, not part of the guidelines, but in patients who have pseudomonas um, uh, and bronchiectasis, I'm saying, I'm sorry, patients who have underlying bronchiectasis who have a significant exacerbation with, with that bug, uh, the evidence there, though, again, not, not great, the evidence there suggests that longer courses, so that most, most recommendations are 10 to 14 days. Again, this is different than patients without bronchiectasis, the sort of the quote unquote, you know, routine pneumonias, but um, so there are different clinical caveats, but the data, um, as you said, supports, in general, shorter uh, rather than longer. That's actually a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because it is really important to, you know, keep these guidelines with a grain of salt. And then when you're applying them to the individual patient, I mean, that's the thing. Of course, as you know, uh, every patient that we have, they fit into um, many possible guidelines. <laughs> so, you know, somebody right. who has airway colonization from uh, bronchiectasis, now there are pretty, you know, clear recommendations of a little bit longer duration and then also the importance of airway clearance. One of the things that I'm constantly struck by, struck by is it's, uh, you know, we have pretty good clear recommendations of how to treat with antibiotics. But antibiotics are just one of the things that we do to make a difference in pneumonia. And one of the um, huge things for pneumonia is getting the patients out of bed, um, making sure that they have airway clearance, you know, helping tip the scales of that bacterial burden. Antibiotics is one thing, but we do a lot of mechanical things to clear the pathogen also. And so I like to think about that. And, and you know, I work in an academic hospital, so I try to bring that up on rounds as much as I can, you know, early mobilization. And that's super important for patients with pneumonia. Amen. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and then the other thing that, again, is a, is a phase shift for many of us, and that is the issue of follow-up chest imaging after pneumonia. So, so what, is, Ooh, yeah. what, do, what do the authors tell us about uh, the value of a follow-up chest X-ray or follow-up chest CT scan? Yeah. So not routine, routinely recommended anymore. I thought that was kind of interesting too. Yep. Um, yeah, and it just looked, they, you know, looked at the studies that were available. And this is again, a conditional recommendation. 
Um, but it just didn't seem that the evidence panned out to really benefit a large number of people to get routine um, x-rays on someone. Now, I thought about that, and I thought about my own patients. Um, and in patients that have, you know, the moderate severity pneumonia, maybe are hospitalized, or the outpatient pneumonia, they've got a small infiltrate. They don't have, you know, underlying stuff that might make you think that they're at risk for any, uh, you know, badness that set them up for the pneumonia. Those patients, I think they're probably right. You know, you, you really don't need a chest x-ray probably for those patients. When I think about a chest x-ray now, I don't know about you, but, you know, the patients with necrotizing pneumonia definitely still, you know, need image follow-up. Um, patients who you're kind of worried about a post-obstructive process, Yep. Those patients should really, you know, we want to make sure that they're getting good outpatient care and getting followed. Um, what do you think? What other patients would you use uh, no, x-rays for? No, I think you're right. I think cavitary pneumonias, um, you know, I think you need to make sure that they, that you follow them to at least close to resolution or certainly significant improvement. But I, I think, I think I agree with, with the ones that you elucidated. Um, those are with a lot of other underlying um pulmonary comorbidities, especially COPD, where you worry about the possibility, especially for dense low bar infiltrates. Uh, but for otherwise healthy people who, you know, get better relatively quickly and, you know, with over several days, I agree. I think uh, in the vast majority of those patients in my clinical experience, uh, they get better. And, and in retrospect, uh, I didn't need the chest x-ray to tell me they got better. But if there's a doubt or if their symptoms right. are prolonged, I think repeat imaging, uh, I think, becomes important. And again, I think what yeah. you mentioned is very important that, you know, the, the guidelines, um, you know, are based on a variety of quality of evidence. And I think, uh, you know, they're important, um, but the clinical judgment based on a knowledge of the patient, a knowledge of their comorbidities and their clinical course, uh, you know, is, is very important to consider when you're making decisions about this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's right. So is there anything, I think we covered um, all the, the major points of, of the guidelines, unless, unless there's something else you wanted to add. Um, but if not, then, I mean, this has been great, and I think it's been very helpful, and I've certainly learned a lot um, um, from reading your summary. So I, I wanted to end with just really coming back to how we started. So what are the main take-home points that our clinicians have to remember from the work that you've published? Yeah, well, I think that you could kind of sum it up, or at least sum up many of the changes as a less is more philosophy, especially for patients with non-severe CAP, with typical organisms that you're suspicious of, you're not giving them broad-spectrum antibiotics, less diagnostic testing for those folks, um, but more of a shift toward more aggressive diagnosis when you've got a patient with severe pneumonia or you're giving them broad-spectrum antibiotics. Um, the hope is that these guidelines are going to kind of curb our overuse and probably unnecessary overuse of broad-spectrum antibiotics um, and, you know, unnecessary blood cultures. Uh, so I would say that's kind of the sum. A, a little bit less is more when you've got a patient who's less sick. Perfect. Well, very well said. Dr. Jones, any last comments or any last thoughts that uh, you wanted to relate to the audience? Oh, yeah. You know, I really think the authors did this a fantastic job with this guideline from the evidence that they had. Um, they did emphasize in many places that there is low quality evidence to support a lot of the recommendations. 
And I think it's important to recognize we have a lot to learn in pneumonia and our evidence base is not exactly this solid, unchanging platform. It kind of should be seen like a sort of shifting glacier, maybe. <laughs> um, there's a lot of un, you know, diagnostic uncertainty in pneumonia. And so far, you know, we haven't had a dramatic improvement in research and technology that's supposed to help us diagnose infection you know, as, a, as a general syndrome. So most of the time, we're considering alternative diagnoses when we're using these guidelines. And so as clinicians, our job, you know, is probably not to necessarily follow these to a T. Uh, we probably need to pay attention to kind of when and for whom they work and when they don't work. Uh, so our research should pay attention to this too. And I think that in our lifetime, we're going to learn a lot more about the host response to infection, new diagnostic technologies, hopefully, that'll really help us be more elegant about identifying and treating infection that's really gonna change the way I think we diagnose and treat pneumonia. Um, I mean, this is the best we've got, <laughs> but I think that we'll see it change a lot in our lifetime. Perfect. So I'd like to thank Dr. Jones again very much for participating in the podcast. I think it was a great discussion. I really enjoyed uh, the summary uh, of the guideline and, and then really um, speaking from one clinician to the other about clinical experience using the guidelines in the context of, of the whole patient. So I thought that was great. So until next time, yeah, thank you. you know, you're welcome. Podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Thank you very much for listening.